bringing relevant and engaging insights to human resource and talent development professionals. This is Talent Champions with Diana Thomas, sponsored by Franklin Covey. Here is your host, Diana Thomas. Welcome to another episode of Talent Champions. I'm Diana Thomas, and I'm honored to serve as your host. I am super excited about today's guest, Liz Wiseman. Liz is a researcher, speaker, executive advisor, and the author of the New York Times bestselling book, Multipliers, How the Best Leaders Make Everyone Smarter. She's currently the president of the Wiseman Group, which offers executive development services in the form of keynotes, workshops, certifications, and assessments. Previously, Liz was the vice president of Oracle University, and she's also led education technology firm Mindshare Learning. So welcome, Liz. Well, Diana, it's good to be here, and it's good to spend some time with someone else who has run a corporate university and dealt with some of the same kind of challenges. So I'm thrilled about our conversation. Oh, super excited here. So in past episodes, we've discussed how to be the type of leader that resonates with others and inspires committed followers. In today's episode, we're going to drill down to how the best leaders make everyone smarter using what you, Liz, have coined the multiplier effect. I love that. But before we jump into our topic, maybe you could share a little bit about your background and how you ended up where you are today. Mm. I spent the first half of my career leading the teaching function at Oracle because I ran Oracle University. And then I spent the second half of my career teaching leadership. So in some ways, I've, I've completely flipped my focus. And ironically, I started my career wanting to teach leadership. And someone gave me some great advice. He said, Liz, if you want to teach managers, how to be good managers, how to lead, maybe you should spend some time learning how to do that yourself, which coming out of college hadn't really occurred to me. I just wanted to go straight to what I loved and wanted to do. And I heeded his advice mostly because he wouldn't hire me. And (laughs) I went and took a job at Oracle. It was this young, rapidly growing software company. And I, I honestly, as part of the reason why I was excited to talk with you, I think it was because McDonald's had Hamburger University and Microsoft had just gone public and Oracle had just gone public that Oracle decided they wanted a university as well. I don't know if it was keeping up with McDonald's or keeping up with Microsoft, but I was very young and about a year into my my career, I got told, you know what, Liz, you're now in charge of the training function for the company. And we want a university, go build a university. And I, I probably had fewer qualifications for this job than when you took over that job, Diana. I was, I had no idea what I was doing. And really, you know, I was new to management and I was new to this corporate university. So I got thrown in and had to figure it out really fast. And then when I left, I kind of went back to what I had wanted to do, which is to not just to be the leader, but to teach other people how to lead well. And it was the few observations I had in my early days at Oracle that led to my books and and my coaching and teaching work. 
I love that. And I love, especially for our audiences, you've been a talent champion. And I love how you said you started to really watch leadership and study leadership when you were in that role and what else you could do. And then to leave and then to teach and develop leaders, uh, you're just the ideal guest to have. So we really appreciate you sharing some of your expertise so maybe a good place to go next is to talk about your book and give us maybe a quick summary of multipliers. The book is an examination and an exploration of why we're so smart and capable around some leaders. I, I call these leaders multipliers, but yet we hold back around others. And it really started with this observation. I had like, why is it that some leaders seem to bring out the best in everyone. Like everyone is smart and capable around leader A, but those very same people walk down the hall, you know, into a meeting with leader B and you see a very different version of those people. You see people holding back and playing it safe and and offering really a fraction of their capability. So the, the book is is really how we use our own intelligence and capability and really talent in a way that brings out intelligence and capability in people around us. So it lays out these two types of leaders, but I think the more interesting part of my research was realizing that not only do some leaders kind of um, drain organizations of intelligence, and I found probably the key finding in this book was that these diminishing leaders get less than half of people's know-how and intelligence and capability. So that was really the first observation. And the second was when I realized in this research that most of the diminishing that's happening in our organizations is, is done with the very best of intent. You know, it's not done by bad leaders, the people who are like escaping management training programs, like, okay, let me figure out how to be sick on that day. They actually were very well intended, and I call them accidental diminishers. And I find that most of the diminishing, most of my own diminishing, is done with the very best of intentions. And so, it's how do you spot that, and how do you remedy that? Great insights, and I love in your book you give great examples. I think people really can learn through stories and hearing how leaders do it right and how leaders could do it better. And you do a wonderful job in the book describing that and giving advice. So I I would highly recommend it. It's a great book and, and very relevant today. Uh, as I was reading the foreword, which made me smile because... Um, Stephen R. Covey, the father, just such a huge role model for me coming up as I was trained uh, through Franklin Covey to do a variety of their programs. And I had a chance to interact with him one-on-one -on -one several times. He actually came to Hamburg University, and it has to be like 10 years ago. Maybe it was when your book was first coming out. And I remember we set up a meeting with our executive team. And he asked the executive team, he said, how many of you get a chance to work with employees that still possess additional talent and capability to do more and want to do more? And every executive raised their hand. And then he asked the next question. He said, you know, how many of you feel the pressure 
per, to produce more with less. And everybody raised their hand. And then the, probably the best slide I've ever seen is he put this big print that said, duh. And he said, see, we've got the ability, if we learn how to tap into our employees more, they want to do more. They want to be more engaged. And we need them to. And I'll never forget, that was the last time I got to see him in person. But just the impact it had on me, like, how do we do a better job of engaging and pulling out that talent? And that's what I love about your book. It is about the leaders need to be able to do that. I think the book is that duh. It, and I, I love this insight that you give me, Dan, because I've always wondered, like, why did Stephen R. Covey write the endorsement for this book? Now, first of all, it started with we asked him, but, you know, I did not know him well, and he wrote very few forwards. And I think it might have been because we were part of the answer to this duh of, wait a minute, we have these twin challenges. They're both making leaders crazy, which is how do we more deeply engage our employees and, and keep employees challenged and satisfied with their work. But then how do we keep doing more with mess? And, and I think a lot of people have seen these as these two separate challenges, but they're, they're really the same challenge. The way you multiply the talent of people around you does two things. One, it gives you more resource to solve your hardest problems. When you lead this way, you get all of people's intellect and ideas and talent and skills and capability and discretionary effort. And you get all of that from people, but it's, it's not just about extracting more for the benefit of the enterprise. It, it creates an environment where everyone wants to work. I guess a lot of people consider me this leadership expert. Strangely, I feel like most of what I've learned in my research about leadership and my own you know, career as a practitioner and, and a leader in the corporate world is I've really learned a lot about contributorship. People around the world come to work every day desperately wanting to give 100% of their capability. Like it hurts people to come into work knowing they have talent and know-how and contribution to make that their bosses don't see or don't need. Like nobody likes working at a fraction of their capability. I often, you know, ask people, what's it like to be, and these are, I think are in, in Dr. Covey's words, you know, overworked and underutilized. And the answer is it's frustrating. It's demoralizing. It, it's exhausting. You know, it's exhausting to be underutilized. So really, when we lead this way, it's a true win-win in Covey's language that we create more for the enterprise, but we create a lot more for the contributors in the enterprise. Like we create a great place to work where people get to do great work. It's a good gig. <laughs> and, and I think as we've seen other companies and work with different leaders, you just know 
those places that people are really engaged and jazzed and are doing their best. And you can see that the leadership is a huge part of that. And then you see these other groups and you go, wow, you're leaving things on the table. You could be getting even more from your employees. And and that's one of the things I love about doing executive development and executive coaching is helping those leaders because just like you said, employees don't show up and don't want to give their all. They want to contribute. I think leaders do that same thing. They want to come in and they want to be the best leader and the best boss. But sometimes the scope of the job or where they've come from and their competency level or just what they're able to see is limiting them from getting the best of their employees. The best leaders are the best learners because none of us has figured it all out, but we can keep getting better and growing and learning. Indeed. So there's a lot of books out there on leadership. Maybe you could give us a little bit more on the audience. Who is your book written for? When I started the book, I was really, you know, I was making this proposition that you could get more from people and and really showing the business value of this and the economic value. But, you know, now that I've been at this a couple of years, I really think, yeah, that's that's a good reason to want to lead this way. But I think a lot of people for whom the ideas resonate are people who not only want to get more from others, they're people who just want to give back. It's the leader who wants to leave a legacy as simple as like, you know, when I'm done with my career, I want to be known as one of the leaders who people grew around. People learned around me. People didn't cower. People didn't defer. I was a leader around whom people learned, were at their best, grew, advanced in their career, and and actually had a lot of fun and probably a lot of laughs. And I don't know if there's a an economic value you can attach to that, but I actually think the kind of leader who wants to read a book like this and lead this way is often just the person who says, no, I actually want to do it just for the sake of doing it, yeah. just kind of being this sort of person. Yeah, I love that. I also have had the chance to just um, interview some fascinating guests that will be coming up shortly. One individual that helps lead uh, the organization, Great Place to Work, and Why People Stay at Companies. And then some fabulous professors that have done some work about why people quit. And one of the key things that came through in both of those episodes was people will stay around and feel better and create a better work environment if they feel valued and embedded in the job. So I like what you're saying. It's not just to get more for the company, but for that individual to feel more connected and to want to stay and to give their best. I think a lot of leaders do it for both those reasons. That's been my observation. Absolutely. So you've had the chance to work with a lot of high-performing organizations. Could you share some of the key problems that you're seeing companies face, or is there a competency that you know companies need to focus in on a little bit more? Well, well, there is, and you know, it's been several years that we've been working with companies on these kinds of issues, and there are some very, very clear patterns. And, you know, I come from the tech world, the software world. And so I might call these use cases. Like there's certain ways people use these ideas. And and probably the first is organizations trying to 
do more. And it's not necessarily do more with fewer resources. It's do more by getting more from the people that are already working there inside the company. Um, The second would be companies in high growth mode who have to figure out that you may be able to start an organization on pure genius, but to scale an organization, to build an organization that lasts, you need people who are not just geniuses, but genius makers, you know, leaders who multiply the talent of others. So it's, it's about leading at scale. How do we grow our business by growing the talent that um, sits inside of the business? Probably the third would be organizations who have an innovation agenda where we have to um, adapt faster than the world around us is adapting. We need to bring new products to market. We need to stay you know, just a step ahead of some of the upstarts and disruptors in the environment. So a lot of organizations come to us with a really strong innovation agenda. The, the fourth would probably be engagement, that they're trying to build a culture of deep employee engagement. And sometimes that's very proactive. Sometimes it's companies who've just kind of had their front teeth kicked in a little bit with an employee engagement survey. And they're like, ooh, I see a lot of companies employ engagement um, survey results and they'll say either we aren't doing a good job in general or there's this hole in our employee engagement efforts. Over the last couple of years, we've seen a, a new one and that is around inclusive leadership. How do we help our leaders lead in inclusive ways, which you know goes beyond sort of the superficial forms of diversity, but really includes the deep forms of diversity, like intellectual diversity, that how do we help managers pull in people who are, let's say, more introverted, let's if the manager is extroverted, or people who have different mental styles, helping managers see that intelligence comes in very diverse forms. And you know, instead of asking like, gee, even is this person smart? It's like training ourselves to ask, in what way is this person smart? What is the, I call it the native genius that somebody brings? And how do you see that and use it, particularly when it it presents itself differently? And and there's a few more, but those are some of the some of the um, really prominent reasons why companies come and say, help us be more of multipliers, help us build this more multiplier-like culture. And it is really this this culture, you know, that people are looking to create or to uh, evolve or to tap into if it's already at a, a really productive level. So we've been talking a lot on our podcast about building, shaping, and modifying culture. So how can our talent champions begin to embed the multiplier's concept into their workplace culture? Well, I think a lot of people in the talent development world, you know, we tend to start with, okay, we need to give people the skills. And then we kind of quickly go to, okay, we've got to get senior management support for that. And we've got to hook it into our performance management systems. And None of those hurt and all of those help, but there's usually something that precedes that. For me, it was getting feedback, I guess, as an author and an educator. People say, oh, 
I read your book. And they said, you know, we're still talking about that. They're talking about this idea of multiplier and diminisher. And they're particularly talking about this idea of the accidental diminisher and and the ways that we end up diminishing with the best of intentions, like, and, and maybe Diana, I'll share um, some of my own accidental diminisher tendencies. I'm very much an idea guy, creative, full of ideas, a fountain of ideas. And sometimes I'm so full of ideas that people who work for me end up chasing these ideas and maybe not coming up with ideas of their own because it's just too easy to say, hey, Liz, what do you think? And I'm like, oh, well, how about this? Or what about this? Or let's try this. Or, or I'm also, you know, a really optimistic kind of leader, just positive, can do, which I find is terribly annoying to the people who work for me. They're like, Liz, here's what we need you to say to us. Liz, we need you to say what we're doing is hard. As my boss, I really want you to say it's hard. And and so like this language of the idea guy, the optimist, the rescuer, the pace setter, the rapid responder, the you know, always on leader, the perfectionist, we find that these terms are really, really sticky. And it gives groups a chance. So just the simple language gives groups a chance to, to discuss the previously undiscussable. We've made it safe for people to say to their bosses, I've got this, I'm going to get it done. You don't need to rescue me. I appreciate you know, that you're interested in helping me, but let me struggle through this. I will get it done. And just having this language allows people to give each other feedback and the awareness to help curb the accidental diminisher moments. Everything I see is that most managers really want to be good managers, but they don't realize that so much of what they're doing is suffocating their employees. And so just with a little bit of light correction, they can self-correct. And and having this shared vocabulary creates a shared aspiration of here's who we want to be. So I guess that's what I've learned is, is make it safe to talk about what's difficult. I think that's what I've, I've learned is a really critical step to culture that I hadn't seen before. That's so, so interesting and so important in regards to just creating that environment to have dialogue. And sometimes it is easier to bring a third party in and create, you know, that dialogue a little bit. But I would encourage our talent champions that are listening, if they can help be that catalyst to create some of the conversations that need to take place and to start that dialogue. And as we've already said, on both sides, people want the company to succeed. They want to bring in their best. So if we can give each other feedback in a way uh, that helps us all take our game up a little bit more, uh, everybody wins. So I love that. Great advice. Are there any other derailers that you would want to identify for our talent champions to be aware of if they're trying to create this multiplier culture? Mm, Well, there's many. There's many. Uh, Maybe I'll share the one biggie, the one that I see that we don't often deal with. And, And that's hypocrisy. It's the fact that almost every leader out there in any enterprise has a fair degree of hypocrisy they're carrying with them. And 
in some ways, the more senior you are as a leader and in some ways, the more visionary and the better you are as a leader, the more hypocrisy that comes with that job, meaning that what a great leader does is take people to a better place. Like they're aspirational, they're transformational, they're trying to escape status quo and help people move to something different and, and better. They're calling people to lead in higher ways. Well, when we do that, we're calling people to lead in a different way. Like our behavior hasn't arrived there yet either. And so there's almost always a gap between what a leader says, like this is the type of leadership we need here and where they personally are as a leader. And we often look at that gap and go, well, she's not doing that. Like she's saying we want this, but her own leadership falls short of that. So therefore she doesn't really mean it or she's a hypocrite or I don't have to do it. Like it's inevitable that leaders will have diminishing moments. It's inevitable that we're going to call people to a higher form of leadership and then fall short ourselves. And I think wise talent champions and learning and development professionals need to understand that that's going to happen, that there is no such thing as this perfect executive sponsor who's going to sponsor a program and then be a perfect living embodiment of it. And so I think we have to have ways to talk about that way for leaders to get feedback, ways for us to laugh at that gap. And so I think we all need to accept sort of the learner in every leader and have a way to talk about that and explain that to people in the organization so that they don't see that gap and just give up and fall right back to status quo. That's probably one of the derailers that I see happen uh, that I think we can fix. Something to step back and really think about. One, if you're the leader listening to this, or two, if you're observing the leader and you can help create this environment where people are a little more honest. And, and I was thinking when you were talking about your style, we have very similar styles. I'm very visionary. Uh, very excited, and I can talk and generate a lot of ideas. It's the follow-through that I really need people there to make sure we do that as a team. And so my team would coach me to say, especially my directors and senior directors, when you're talking to Diana or Diana, when you're talking to our team members, let's be careful that you're not brainstorming and it's coming across as direction too because that that's one of those things that you know as leaders if you can get people very excited but then it's got to be realistic to get done and follow through and so it became an environment where I catch myself and was like you know what that was just some idea sharing not direction and let's just go back to the regular plan you know I know Diane I have a confession there's a part in the book there's a, an executive who had a sign on her door, ignore me as needed to get your job done. Oh, I love it. I love but it. The confession <laughs> was, it was actually me. And because I would tell people like, you know what, I'm going to have ideas and I'm going to want to give you input. And it's just my creative mind that I just have a hard time bridling. But you know what, here's the thing. If that's standing in the way of you getting done what you think is the right thing to do, like, Ignore me as needed, but fundamentally, like, get your job done, and, and I will be okay if you ignore me, but I won't really be okay if you don't move forward. 
So Liz, in your book, you talked about pulling weeds as a way to remove diminishers that are hampering or holding back the team, which sounds straightforward in theory, but it's probably a little more challenging and there's some political issues in that reality. How do you coach people to manage that political ramifications of reorganizing a team or making a change with the leader? Yeah, there, there are times when organizations need to remove diminishers. Absolutely. But it, I, I do think it's a little bit naive because I've come to understand more deeply the reasons why diminishing leaders sometimes need to stay inside of organizations. And what I would say is if it doesn't make sense to remove them, what you really need to do is understand why you're keeping them. And you need to understand and talk about the value that they bring to the organization. We talked about building a multiplier culture. And strangely, what I have found is the organizations that really get deep traction with the ideas that really build this multiplier culture are not the organizations that talk incessantly about multipliers. It's the organizations that talk about diminishing they've legitimized that conversation. You know, they have the accidental diminisher conversation. They laugh at it, but they also talk about the diminishers in their organization and the other values that they bring. And and they may not have this abrupt, like pull the weeds, rip them from the organization, toss them out on the street into the market. They might have a, a very gentle process for doing that. I'm really impressed with the process that SAP has used to introduce Multipliers. It's their primary leadership philosophy. They use it in the corporation around the world. And they started by training people and they started with the senior execs and the first line execs. And then they introduced a measurement system where they were measuring employee engagement and trust, like a net promoter score for how employees trusted their bosses. They put an 18 month gap in between the training. And when they introduced that measurement system, because they wanted, this is my language, not necessarily theirs, a gentle way. They're like, you know what? We want you just to get accustomed to this new way of leading and this standard we have. We're giving you a long runway to, to get up to speed on this. And then as they measured people, and when people fell short, it wasn't like, okay, you're tossed on the street. It's, here's some coaching to help you get up speed and pe- people still couldn't do it then it was like here let's let's find a role that's more suited to the individual contributor in you rather than the manager part of your role and i think it was a great example of a very thoughtful and gentle way of helping people lead in in new and in some ways very foreign ways for them it didn't look like just pulling the weeds and putting it in the compost bin yeah. And I think there's the reality of, of how you do that. And I really am coaching the leaders I'm working with as they're making the decisions on who that next leader is to really make sure that the person's ready. And if they're not ready, that they're supported, whether it's with coaching, additional development, so that they can be the most impactful leader. They're creating a better culture and or building on a great culture and not 
being that, like you said, the unintentional diminisher. So I think it is about developing people. And then on the flip side, there are definitely leaders that I think need to go. As I've interacted with different people, a big supporter of you've got to bring the right team members onto your team. And, you know, A players can help you take your game up. And sometimes we spend a little bit too much time on some of the lower performers. So I think what I'm hearing from you and what's in the book is it is a balance, but it's also about helping people where they are and if they can grow and be the best contributor based on where they should be and their talents uh, play to. Yeah, and I've learned to see to really understand and to empathize with what causes well-intended people to become diminishers, even the abject diminishers that like nobody wants to work for. I really developed an empathy for what got them there. And, you know, a lot of people ask, well, yeah, this is great. Like I want to be a multiplier leader, but truth be told is I'm stuck working for a very diminishing boss. What do I do? It begins with really understanding why? What might be their best intention? Like when someone's doing something horribly diminishing, I've learned to step back and say, wait a minute, what might be my most generous interpretation of of their leadership right now? Like, could they be trying to help? What is my most compassionate and proactive response? Meaning how do I respond to them in a way that understands where they're coming from with the leader and maybe even understanding like, wow, a terrible boss. I wonder where they learned this. I wonder, in some ways, I wonder who did this to them. (laughs) So having compassion for where they're coming from, but then also what's my most proactive response? How do I, with the greatest degree of confidence, continue my contribution? And I think in some ways, just as we carry ourselves with greater levels of confidence and assurance about our own contribution, a lot of that diminishing doesn't necessarily go away, but it recedes and we create a bigger space for ourselves to be able to contribute. So maybe turning a little bit towards some of our younger leaders, we have a younger population of leaders that have aspirations for higher level roles. And as I interact with this group, you know, they'll talk about there's just so many resources out there. What advice do you have for maybe our younger leaders in regards to navigating through all of the development that's out there? How do they find that helpful content that fits their needs today? Hmm. Wow. I mean, don't we all need like a leadership librarian? (laughs) There's so much out there, books, articles, blogs, podcasts, you know, it's a feast and it's sometimes hard to know what what to pick. And I think what I would advise, because I've spent so much time trying to understand a leader's impact on the people that he or she leads, if you are struggling looking for a librarian to guide you to the resources that are going to be most helpful for you, you know what? Your best librarian are the people who work for you. Meaning instead of you trying to decide, just Ask the people who work for you, you know, what do you think I should be reading to be a great leader? They're like, oh, I got a book for you, or I got an article for you. Let your team pick your your leadership learning experiment for the year. Like, hey, if I were to experiment with one new leadership practice, 
what would it be? And your team, let your team vote on it. Yeah, I love that advice. And if you're not in a leadership position yet, maybe just flipping it and saying some of those leaders that you aspire to be like is ask them what they listened to or what they read or what advice they would give you uh, to continue to grow the leadership skills. I love that in the context of where you are today and, and around the people that get to see you day in and day out too. So do you have a favorite leadership book that's impacted your career? They're like my kids. I have a lot of favorites. I have four kids, four favorites. And, you know, probably the one that has most impacted me, and it's still one of my favorites, is Good to Great by Jim Collins. Oh, and I love that. It was, oh, I do. I do just love it. It was given to me by um, one of my employees when I was at Oracle. And somehow because she was the one who tipped me off, it meant a lot to me. And I knew Jim Collins from um, some work we had done together earlier, but it was actually one of the books that gave me the courage to go out and write multipliers and then rookie smarts because Jim made so clear his research methodology. Yeah. He's, he's very much an inspiration to me as well. Absolutely. So I've been wondering as I've been just interacting with you and just the amount of things that you've been involved in since you led the university for Oracle and, and in that high profile, very important uh, talent champion role. What have you learned that you would do differently if you were in that role today? Does anything come to mind? I mean, I think about this all the time. Like, you know, I think as you get older, you understand your shortcomings and what you could do differently. And I think about if I could go back, there's definitely a few things I would do differently. Um, is, does anything come to mind for you? Oh, yeah. I'm getting a list of things, like a list of movie credits. Like it's going by so fast, I can't even read it. Yeah, no, there's a couple that jump out at me. One is, man, did I waste a lot of Oracle's money building competency models. By the time you're done, the job has changed. The world has changed. And you know, I've learned that they're like a best practice in that they capture the past, but not the future. And nobody really likes these competency models. And I don't, I'm not even sure the people who build them like competency models. And it's <laughs> so, true. And, you know, a lot of times um, people will ask me to come in and introduce this multiplier diminisher framework into their organization and they place it on top of the competency framework because they know their managers aren't paying attention to the, like the eight competencies they need to be a great leader but man they can remember this idea of being a multiplier i would have spent a lot less time and resource trying to do that um that's one i think the second thing i would have spent less time doing is worrying about trying to drive change from the top. It's one of those, like, you know, they say lies travel faster than, than truths and further and deeper. Like, I feel like someone had a good idea, which is like all change and transformational change in an organization should start at the top and like cascade down. I just don't think it's true. And I think we've been buying into it for a long time. And it's not true. Now, I don't mean that it can't start at the top. Like if you have the luxury of senior leaders who are bought in on an idea and can champion it, that's great. Like ride that wave. 
but they're being asked to champion so many things that of course this hypocrisy you know creeps in because they're being asked to to lead things that maybe they have a partial attachment to and so they're not going to see it through start where there is energy start in the middle start anywhere and and build pockets of success and momentum and then let nature take its course i think any any reasonable executive has built a skill, a competency, and it's called get out in front of the parade. What a great executive has to do is be able to see something good happening in their organization, energy, momentum, a parade starting, and they see something good happen, and then they go out and they get in front of it and they lead that parade. And It's what happens is like if you do something good and you're getting results and you're getting engagement and ROI and you're having success, success doesn't tend to go unnoticed. That then you'll get the powers that be saying, you know what, we want to be involved in that. How can I help you champion that? How can I help take this to other organizations? And soon, like that goodness starts to get visibility upward, and then it gets championed. I would have done a lot more by just getting started rather than waiting to start at the top Mm -hmm. in hindsight. Yeah, great advice, great perspective. So can you tell us about one person who's had the greatest impact on your professional life and why you wouldn't be where you are today without that person's influence? Mm -hmm. Oh, I, I have been... The beneficiary of so many incredible mentors. I owe any, everything in my career to the mentoring that I had, particularly at Oracle, with these incredible executives I worked with. But there was one, a faculty member in our university who I think was really my dearest, most impactful mentor. And there was a point when we wanted to bring in someone to teach strategic thinking to our executives, our top, you know, um, 250 leaders around the world. And I hired... Dr. C.K. Prahalad out of the University of Michigan. He was one of the great business minds of our time. I think for several years running, Thinkers 50 named him as the top management thinker in the world. And uh, we brought him in and I became his student. And I just soaked up everything that this man, as he was teaching our executives, I just like, I'm going to learn everything I can from him. And we got to work together for, oh, a good couple years at Oracle. And he became the dearest mentor to me. He passed um, in 2010 and we lost this great thinker too early. But he was one of the people who gave me the confidence to, to go write this book. I remember at one point his, his wife said something to me. This was before he passed. I was at their home. And she said, I wanted to tell you something. She said, CK would never tell you this himself. She said, CK told me, like, you're the best student he's ever had. And I'm like, really? I can't possibly be. Like, he teaches some of the smartest executives and, and you know, MBA students out there. And I kind of just brushed it off as like, oh, that's, that's silly. But as I was leaving um, their house, I thought, you know, I think from his perspective, like that makes sense because I was smart around him. It wasn't me. It was the way he taught, the way he led. His intelligence brought out intelligence in me. And I really came to see the power of this this idea of a, a multiplier as a leader and as a mentor. 
Wow. Such an impactful story. Uh, Thank you for sharing. So what final piece of advice do you have for our talent champions? You know, we spend a lot of time thinking about what do people need to learn. I spend more time thinking about not what should people be learning about or even in what ways are they going to learn, but how do we make it safe for people to learn? And particularly those of you who are in the realm of executive development, I have found that I have to put my most diligent effort into making it safe for executives to learn because there's so many reasons why it's hard for them to learn. And it's not because they aren't brilliant. It's because they don't hear the truth as easily. How do we create the comfort, the safety, the lightheartedness for people to become aware of uncomfortable truths and learn things that are uncomfortable for people to learn? How do we make it not just emotionally, but intellectually safe for learning all across the enterprise? I love it. How do we make it safe for people to learn? Because people inherently want to learn and grow and do better, like you said earlier. Love. Great advice to leave us on. So how can our listeners get in touch with you or continue to learn from you? You can go to either of these websites. There's themultipliersbooks.com. You could go to our little firm's website, thewisemangroup.com. Now, if you go to wisemangroup.com, you're going to go to an interior design firm in San Francisco, and I guarantee you their website is more interesting than our website, (laughs) (laughs) but it's thewisemangroup.com, and um, you can find me on uh, LinkedIn. Uh, You can email either me, Liz, at thewisemangroup.com or info at thewisemangroup.com. They respond faster than I do, and on Twitter, at Liz Wiseman. I'm pretty easy to find. Wonderful. Well, thank you so much. It's been such a pleasure. There were so many other questions I could ask you. I feel like we're kindred spirits. We've been living parallel lives. I'm really glad we have this time together. And I I just want to thank you for sharing your expertise, your passion, just your genuine um, caring to help others grow and improve. And I can tell you that you've made me smarter, and I'm sure you've impacted our audience. Thank you so much. It's a pleasure. Thank you, Diana. Liz and I covered so much ground. Here are the key takeaways from today's show. The multipliers concept is a way of leading that brings out the best intelligence and capability of the people all around us. Diminishers are the opposite of multipliers. And while most diminishing is accidental, it can be challenging to identify and overcome on your own. Multiplying the talent of the people around you gives you more resources to solve your hardest problems, and it also creates an environment where people want to work. Companies benefiting from the multiplier's leadership approach are leading on growth, innovation, and culture. Creating a common vocabulary to talk about the problems with leadership is a critical step in identifying and addressing diminishers. A shared vocabulary makes it safe to talk about what's difficult and leads to shared aspirations of where we want to go. Aspirational leaders who are working to transform their organizations almost always have a degree of hypocrisy. They're calling people to lead in higher ways, but aren't leading that way themselves. 
There will never be a perfect leader or executive sponsor, and we all need to accept the learner within the leader. Make changes and deal with diminishers gently. Sometimes diminishing leaders need to stay in an organization. Be clear about the reasons for keeping that individual and look for a suitable role, perhaps as an individual contributor instead of a leader. The people on your team can be great leadership librarians. Ask them what resources you should be reading, listening to, and experiencing for your own development. And if you're an aspiring leader, ask the leaders you admire what they use to keep learning and growing. Transformational change doesn't have to start at the top. Drive change where it can get started. As you gain success, you'll gain the attention of needed champions. Liz calls this the executive skill of getting out in front of the parade. Make it safe for people to learn, particularly when it comes to uncomfortable truths. People inherently want to improve, but they need to learn in an environment that's emotionally and intelligently safe. As special bonus material, listeners can visit talent-champions.com to download a free chapter from Multipliers on dealing with accidental diminishers. I so enjoyed my conversation with Liz, and the discussion will pick up again in two weeks as we look at another angle of creating an environment where people are happy bringing their best selves to work. Subscribe on our website, talent-champions.com, to receive an email notification when our next episode is released. And as I mentioned, email subscribers also get extra bonus content from our guests. If you enjoyed today's show, please take a moment to rate and subscribe on your podcast player. It really helps us to reach more talent champions. Thanks and have a great week. Thanks for listening to Talent Champions with Diana Thomas. For more information about today's show or to receive more valuable insights, please visit franklincovey.com slash talent champions. If you've enjoyed this podcast, check out Franklin Covey's other podcast, Great Life, Great Career with Scott Miller and Franklin Covey on Leadership, available from your favorite podcast provider.